questions and answers. In 1978, a battle raged around the world as to whether the Bible was inerrant, meaning it was without error. This prompted an international summit in which 300 leading evangelicals gathered and created the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. What is the doctrine of inerrancy and why is it so important for Christians to understand and defend? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Doug Potter, will be explaining the inerrancy of the Bible and its importance. When we kind of take into a more deeper look at a lot of these difficulties, proposed solutions easily come to mind, and resolution easily comes up with intense study. So we're able to learn more about the background, and then all we have to do as Bible scholars is propose solutions and that don't involve contradictions and errors with regards to the solution itself, and just keep an open mind that as we investigate further, we might solidify exactly what's going on with, re- with respect to this particular difficulty and come, as Augustine said, to a better understanding of it, recognizing we didn't understand it, and now we do understand it. And his book, I think, is Dr. Geiser's book, is a good testimony to the fact that he investigated so many of these and came up with proposed solutions And I've had personal conversations with him about a number of these and even didn't make it into the book with regards to what he thinks may be going on and and a good solution to it, Uh, even even, uh, having after he had written the book, come up with things that are even uh, more certain with regards to certain difficulties. Yes, Augustine's dictum is a great principle to follow, that it's either the manuscript that's faulty, the translation is wrong, or we have not properly understood the text. A good example is that Isaiah 45, 7 in the King James, says, yes. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So we got a problem there. God is the author of evil <laughs> right. here. And so applying these three principles here, the manuscript, the translation, or we have not properly understood the text, uh, how do we approach something like this? Well, I think a better translation, at least in, in, the, in the one that I work from, uses the term calamity. Correct. And I think having an understanding of God, there's a sense in which God can permit evil, and this is the notion of the fact that God is really the cause of everything in the sense that he permits it, but he's not the direct cause of evil. So having an understanding of God's nature is very important there. But what the emphasis there is, is God will allow or permit evil to take place, and it is out of that evil out of that calamity, that he can bring good and can bring about his intention and his will in this world with regards to his people, in regards to us individually, and with regards to, obviously, what he is working and doing in the world concerning his kingdom and the gospel. Right. So there would be a matter of translation. It It could be. Well, the translation does help to clarify But again, I think there's also the notion of the fact that God permits evil to take place in the world only to the extent that he can and is able to bring good out of it, evil being a concomitant of creation itself and obviously free will. God has to allow this to take place, but he is not the direct cause of evil itself. Free will would be or a concomitant of things interacting in in our created world. Right. Okay, so in that case, it would be the translation and getting the proper understanding of that text. Yes, and and of God himself in terms of how he works and operates in the world. Yeah, okay. Now, Doug, you know, what does it mean when he says 
you know, when you say that uh, God cannot err, therefore the Bible being the Word of God cannot err, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's really what I would put in the, in the classification of what I would call an argument uh, for inerrancy itself. And obviously, there are different ways that you can argue for inerrancy, but I think it's pretty straightforward. And the simplest argument, which, which I have to admit I take from Dr. Geyser, we know that God cannot err, and we know that God cannot err because we know the nature of God, not from the Bible, but we know the nature of God from natural theology, that he is absolutely perfect. So we're not arguing in a circle here. We are arguing from understanding that God exists and exists a certain way, as Paul tells us in Romans, from creation. We, we reason from creation to the existence of God and that God is perfect existence and he is, is invisible and has certain attributes that need to be attributed to him because of his perfection. That's kind of the first premise of reasoning to inerrancy. So we begin with the existence and nature of God. The second one is that the Bible is the Word of God, as you say, and it's the Word of God in the sense that it claims to be the Word of God, and it's also the Word of God in the sense that it proves to be the Word of God. Those are kind of two separate steps in that proposition, the Bible is the Word of God. It claims to be the Word of God, as we've read from Paul and Peter with regards to these claims, and go throughout the Old Testament as well, saying God has says, God saith, and so forth. So it claims to be the Word of God. But how does it prove to be the Word of God? Here I would just appeal to the entire discipline of Christian apologetics, the entire subject of study of Christian apologetics that concludes that the Bible is the Word of God. Dr. Geyser's famous 12 points, starting with God, reasoning through the resurrection, through miracles to the resurrection, to the reliability of the New Testament, and then to the resurrection, and then ultimately to the fact that Jesus teaches us about the Bible and that it is the Word of God. This is how it proves to be the Word of God, so it's primarily based upon our Christian apologetic for Jesus having risen from the dead and taught us about the Bible. Well, from 1 and 2, God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God, a simple deduction, therefore the Bible cannot err. Because it comes from God, God breathed it out, as Paul tells us, God cannot err, therefore the Bible, as a written document, and as we've emphasized before, originally given, the autographers, cannot contain errors. Now, Doug, the Chicago statement of inerrancy, you know, it's a recent statement. What is the uh, reason for the doctrine of inerrancy and the Chicago statement of inerrancy? What caused that to arise? Yeah, it it was. I actually remember talking to Dr. Geyser about this because he was instrumental in getting ICBI, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, organized in, in 1978. And as you looked at the landscape of theology back then, and there were people that Dr. Geyser would call, scholars that Dr. Geyser would call neo-evangelicals at various schools at that time that were putting forward an an idea that, that the Bible can be wrong on minor issues like history or getting a place or a name wrong, but still have an overall message with regards to how to get to heaven being, being still true. This he called uh, limited inerrancy, historically speaking, and there started to be a revival of that in the 70s and probably even before at various American seminaries and institutions that are historically evangelical, putting forth this neo or this new evangelicalism with regards to limited inerrancy. And ICBI was basically started to clarify against that. You know, before that time, they had battles with fundamentalism and liberalism. This is going back to the early 1930s. And this was really the battle that swayed in, I think, in the, in the 1970s. 
Dr. Geiser was instrumental in organizing scholars from literally around the country, mostly the U.S., but some of them worldwide, to gather together to really solidify this doctrine into various statements. The end result were three statements, the first two uh, probably being the most important, which is the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and the second one being on on the Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics. What they did is they kind of codified uh, what they affirm with regards to inerrancy and what they deny with regards to inerrancy. If you look at the statement, it has an affirmation and then it has a denial. And in doing this, uh, they were really able to bring, I think, clarification to pastors, churches, denominations. This is something that should sweep across denominations. This should sweep across, doesn't matter what your apologetic method is. It doesn't matter what your denomination is. It doesn't matter what ecclesiastical body you hold to. This is something that all Christians should affirm, because we'll probably say more about this later, but a denial of inerrancy is ultimately an attack upon God's nature. As I've tried to emphasize, inerrancy begins with God in terms of who he is and that he is a certain way and not another way. So to to say it's God's word and to say that there can be minor errors in it is ultimately an attack upon the very nature of God. Yeah, now, Doug, now what is the alternative to the doctrine of biblical inerrancy? Yeah, it's really, there are probably uh, several alternatives to it. Not many evangelicals would go to some of these, but one is to affirm, as liberalism does, that the Bible merely contains a message from God, but is not literally the Word of God breathed out by Him and inerrant. That's the old liberalism that kind of crept into the denominations and various churches back in the turn of the century, 1920s and 1930s. That's one alternative. That's obviously not open or not appealing to most evangelicals. Another one is the rise of neo-Orthodoxy after the two world wars uh, that we went through, and, and particularly under the writing of Karl Barth, which basically says that the Bible contains, or be, I'm sorry, becomes the Word of God. And this is the neo-Orthodox view that says the Bible only is the Word of God when I read it and I have an encounter with Christ via the Holy Spirit and an experience with the Bible. That's when it becomes the Word of God. In other words, as it's sitting there on my desk, and I'm not reading it, it's not the Word of God, but I open it up, and actually it becomes the Word of God when I read it. This, again, is not really an evangelical option. This is really, uh, both of these views have have fallen from the wayside and and are not embraced by evangelicals today. But the scary one is the one that ICBI taught taught against, and that is this neo-evangelical view, which embraces limited inspiration. And this view basically is going to say, that the intent, as long as the intentions with regards to the author or the intentions with regards to God are somehow good and right, it doesn't matter that the text has errors in it or doesn't have errors in it. The intention there is to communicate spiritual truths. And those spiritual truths get through with regards to the text, then it really doesn't matter too much with regards to what the text affirms or denies or teaches on minor issues or historical issues or things that don't affect or seemingly don't affect the spiritual issue or the spiritual truths. This is really where we find ourselves today. This is why we're doing this program today is is this notion of this neo-evangelical view of limited inspiration is very rampant today. I mean, it's very subtle because they will use the language of inerrancy. They will come and say the Bible is inspired by God They'll even say the Bible is inerrant, but what they mean by that is it's inerrant on the spiritual things. When it comes to factual issues or historical or scientific issues, they can say, well, we just kind of widen or broaden our view of inerrancy to either include them somehow or to not include them somehow. 
and we just concentrate on the spiritual issues, what it spiritually affirms. Yes. Uh, this, this is extremely problematic. Yes, you know, Doug, uh, I went to a school first that was liberal, that pretty much denied mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the authority of the Word of God. And what part of the Bible was the inspired Word of God, we never knew. Because yes. uh, when you address one, it, well, that that's, you know, just a legend. It's a fable. That event, the parting of the Red Sea or whatever, that didn't happen. Daniel didn't really exist. These things didn't really happen. Well, when it comes to teaching on ethical issues, well, you know, that was just for first century Israel. Well, that was just Paul's opinion, you know. Right. Uh, and so we didn't know what was the inspired word of God. But when it comes to, then I went to college that uh, was neo-evangelical, and I had some of the similar problems as well. You know, this part was inspired, but, you know, this part wasn't, this part is an error. Well, this part, yes, is correct, but this part is in error. And it got to be really confusing as to what exactly is the inspired you know, what part of the Bible is the inspired Word of God if you take even the neo-evangelical view? Is that what you find? Yeah, exactly right. And, and the difficulty is here is if, if you take a limited view of inspiration, which is what you're describing here, then it is left to the person reading individually the Bible to make those decisions as to what to accept as true and what to accept as false. It's left to the individual. And this is where uh, the kind of the crack in the foundation with regards to all of our uh, Christian truth and Christian faith that we uphold with regard to the Scripture starts to creep in, and you have a small crack in someone who says, well, we don't need to be concerned about this historical event. He probably got this wrong over here. But the problem is that introduces doubt in terms of the rest of us who have to read it, if limited inspiration is true, the rest of us have to read it and make our own decision in terms of what to buy into as being true and what to reject as being false, and eventually this creeps in to the very doctrines themselves. Because ultimately, as Dr. Geiser says, you really cannot separate the spiritual from the historical. You cannot separate the fact that Jesus was born and the virgin birth. You just can't separate those two things. And you can't separate his death on the cross with regards to its spiritual, his actual historical death on the cross with regards to its spiritual implications as paying for our sins. You you can't separate those two things. You obviously cannot separate Jesus raising from the dead, historically speaking, bodily speaking, and the significance of that for us with regards to eternal life and the gospel itself. It sounds right in theory, let's not worry about this problem over here, but in practice you just cannot do that because then the human being becomes the judge as to what to believe and not to believe rather than what the scriptures, as inspired by God, being determinant with regards to what to believe and not to believe in terms of all that it affirms and teaches. Yes, you know, and it affects even the very character of Christ. Christ called the first five books the Law of Moses. And he talked about Jonah and the whale and Sodom and Gomorrah. But if these events are unhistorical and they didn't happen, then Jesus was mistaken. Then your whole question of, is he the divine son of God? and, And what things did he teach was he in error of? That's right, yes, exactly, because what it would force, the limited inerrantist is basically forced to say, well, Jesus just accommodated himself to the time period in which he lived, and that's how they kind of account for these errors. But still, he's God. We want to affirm that he is God in human flesh. God in human flesh cannot sin and cannot err. So he doesn't accommodate himself to err. Now, he can certainly adapt himself to human finitude, meaning Christ doesn't tell us all the teaching with regards to a certain matter. 
and he certainly can adapt to the level of our understanding about things and about matters with regards to scriptural teaching. But he cannot accommodate himself to air. There's just no way you can have, whether it's God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, none of them can actually be involved in accommodating themselves to air or being the source of air. Yeah, and I think what's confusing about the neo-evangelical doctrine of limited inspiration is that, as you stated, they do believe, or they do state, you know, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture and its inerrancy, yet they're meaning something else when they say yeah, in- that's, inerrancy. That's, that's, that's the right. confusing yeah, it, part. Exactly, and if, if they're pressed on it, and one of the things, we haven't really pointed this out, one of the things they want to be able to do is they want to be able to hold on to what I will call negative biblical criticism, which is a scholarly approach that wants to get to the human source and get to the human understanding of Scripture and the human production of Scripture, basically by rejecting things like miracles and rejecting things like inspiration. They want to be able to buy into some of this this theory and some of this scholarship and some of this understanding that is very negative and what I would say is anti-supernatural as far as a bias in, in approaching the Scriptures. They want to be able to buy into this, and this is kind of their motivation of wanting to appear scholarly and and accepted by the scholarly community. They buy into these negative critical theories with regards to to the Bible, and they also, likewise, want to hold on to essential Christian teaching, like the Incarnation and the the Trinity, and hold on to these things, and hold on to these, these teachings. But by holding on to both negative criticism and holding on to essential Christian teaching, but then denying that the Bible is completely true and all that it affirms, they end up denying that and come to some view with regards to there being errors in the Bible or hold some errancy-type view of the Bible itself. But this undermines not only the historical factual matter, it ultimately ends up undermining these truths they want to hold to, like the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Resurrection of Jesus, and so forth. Yes, you know, Doug, one of the exercises I do in my seminary here with the students when I'm teaching on uh, inspiration and inerrancy is I have them look at doctrinal statements of denominations and seminaries and Christian colleges. And one of the difficulties they have, you know, I have them look at liberal schools and conservative schools. And eventually, you know, after about the fifth or sixth one, they begin to catch on. Mm -hmm. But one of the difficulties is that Liberal denominations often say we uphold or believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But what should we be looking for? You know, because that's why I say it's confusing, because, you know, these liberal denominations or colleges in a doctrinal statements that we we hold to inspiration of the Scripture. Yeah, the, the, the only thing you can do is press them on and go, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to hold to the inspiration of Scripture? And when you kind of press them further on it, it basically breaks down into the fact that, well, by saying that, we don't mean that everything in the Bible is, is true. We don't mean that, at least for a liberal or a progressive Christian, they're not going to say that all the morality that's taught in the Bible is for us today, or all the um, truth needs to be bought in with regards to a historical person, place, or thing needs to be affirmed, or something like that. It basically is one needs to press them, and what does this mean? And then we basically see a breakdown with regards to the fact that although they're using the same terminology, inspiration, some of them may even use infallible, but they they just mean this in terms of the things that they want to affirm about the Bible, whatever that happens to be. But in doing that, they are undermining the Scriptures themselves and the essential teaching of of the historic Christian faith 
by allowing air to to creep in uh, with regards to the scripture. Yeah, briefly tell us. We got a, a question here. What's the difference between infallibility and inerrancy and inspiration? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good one, and, and I remember uh, Dr. Geyser answering this question he, uh, in class when, when I had him. He kind of talked about it with regards to history. You used to be able to say that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and people understood with it being the inspired Word of God that it was infallible, that infallibility was include, included in uh, or impregnant in the term inspiration that it's infallible. Now, infallible has to do with its unbreakability. That is, what it says, it will accomplish. It, it, it's actually unbreakable in terms of its whole. If it affirms something, it's not only true, it's just not going to pass away, and it's unable to be broken. As John 10.35, which is the verse for our school, um, the scriptures, Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. So that candles the notion of infallibility that stood for a while, but then some people with regards to infallibility said, well, yeah, it can't be broken, and it will accomplish the spiritual things, but this doesn't entail or apply uh, to the non-spiritual things, like the factual things with regards to our history and person, place, or thing, or science. You go, no, it, it does. And so then you have to come up with another term. The other term is, well, we mean inerrancy by it being infallible. Inerrancy is in the term infallible as just as infallibility is in the term inspiration so it's it's kind of taking apart or unpacking the term itself that becomes so important because people will deny certain aspects of the term as you kind of press them what does this mean and what is this about you have to keep adding a term in there to actually reaffirm what was originally understood to be in the term itself yes and so when we're you know looking at doctrinal statements with students that's what I tell them to look for. I said, look for those big three words, you know, inspired, yeah. infallible, and inerrant. And it's especially today, yeah. yeah, today for a doctrinal statement to survive and be orthodox, correct, with regards to its understanding, it really needs to have all three of the terms. Yeah. And so, you know, when you look at the doctrinal statements when it comes to the Bible, Southern Evangelical, Dallas Theological Seminary, Trinity, yeah. You yes. see those terms in there. That's right. And yes. when you look at the more liberal schools, you know, you might see inspiration, but you don't see infallible or yeah. inerrancy right. in there. They, they, yeah, they've dropped those terms or they're, they're intentionally being a vague about not including them for whatever reason. Yeah. So, yeah, when my students are looking at schools and it says, they say, look, prof, it says inspired. I said, well, ask them, do they hold <laughs> to inerrancy? That's what you want to ask them. And then they'll come back the next That's week. Right. Yeah, you're right, Prof. They don't hold to yeah. inerrancy. Or, That's right, yeah. yeah. You know, there are objections to biblical inerrancy. Let's go through uh, maybe a couple of them here. One sure. is that, Doug, we don't have the originals. Oh, yeah. So how can we say we have an inerrant copy when we don't have the originals? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. And what I, I usually say, and we've kind of already answered this one uh, previously, is the fact that we do have the originals in the copies. So in a sense, we do have them because we can, as we stated before, reconstruct the text of the original through the copies with a tremendous amount of accuracy such that we have 100% of the meaning of the originals, we have 100% of the doctrinal truth of the originals, and even our wording, we can tell, is extremely accurate in terms of a reconstruction of the original text. So there's a sense in which we don't need the originals. Now, obviously, we certainly would love to have them, love to have them have them be preserved, but we don't. And so we have the copies, and the copies are good enough to reconstruct the original. 
And one uh, example that Dr. Geyser, or one illustration Dr. Geyser would give is if we lost, let's say, the Constitution, the original, there's a few originals of the, of the Constitution of the United States of America, would not affect anyone's freedom today. Because we have so many copies of the original, it would certainly be a historic loss of insurmountable scale, but we nonetheless would have so many copies of it, and we would know exactly what our rights are and what the Constitution stood for and would not suffer any harm. And the same exists with regards to the Bible. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs>